0: So this morning, um, I'm going to ask you guys to stand with me real fast as we read these first couple scriptures. We're reading out of the book of Acts still, so we're in the chapter 4 now, and we're going to attempt to do something uh, very ambitious. We're going to try to make our way through about 20 verses today. Uh, Yeah, it's all important. So today we're going to read through uh, Acts 4, chapter 30, or verse 32. So we'll read that together, and then you guys can be seated from there. So if you have your Bibles... It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that they had any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Uh, That's it. That's the word of the Lord, right? (laughs) Amen to that. All right, so you guys can be seated from there. (laughs) just wanted to start off the same way we started off worship. Um, I'm going to pray for us real fast before we get started. Dear Lord, I just give you uh, thanks and glory and honor this morning for allowing to come here uh, and to share this word with everyone. I just pray that as we study the book of Acts, and as we get closer to your word, that we will collectively have that one heart and one soul, and that we will have everything in common. And in doing so, we will be uh, the perfected church. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. So this morning, um, if any of you have read the book of Acts, you're going to see uh, pretty soon, that there's something that's deathly serious that's about to happen. <laughs> and uh, I'm joking about it, but uh, it's not really a joke. Uh, there's something deathly serious that happens. Yes. There's, it's, it, it's one of those things where it's not to be taken lightly. Uh, and there's a reason for it, and we're going to talk about it as we go along, verse by verse. But it's important to start with that first verse there, where it says they're one, one heart and soul, right? And they had everything in common. That is how the church is intended to work. Sadly, that is not how the church really works today, is it? <laughs> so just to give you a little background before we get started, the Christian church, I think, prides itself on its length, right? It's 2,000 plus years of existence. Uh, it's often thought of as the longest running institution, religious institution, especially if you uh, think about how it's connected to Jaism, right? So historic, it goes even further back. Uh, So it has this antiquity to it that's nice. It keeps running. It keeps us refreshed in this idea that we are connected to God and also that we are still going, right? But the problem is, as further away as we've gotten from that origin, the further away we've gotten from the orthodox idea of what church was intended to be. You can blame it on politics. You can blame it on institutions, You can blame it on divisions in the church. You can blame it on the Reformation. You can blame it on all different sorts of things, but the reality is we've broken up and we've taken different sides. We've created different doctrines and different theologies and eschatologies and all these big words that to some make sense and some don't. (laughs) But the truth is we were never intended to work that way. We were never intended to function that way. Division in and of itself is the problem in the church. So, What we're going to look at today is this passage, because there's something that is being told. There's basically three stories that are being told in in these few passages. And we're going to see one, an example of someone who really gets the point of what the church is. We're going to see two people who don't get the point, and then we're going to see what the church can do when it is unified as one body, one heart, one soul, right? So first and foremost, I want to read a passage from Luke chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. You can just write it down. You can whatever if you go from there. It's Luke nine. This is verses twenty three and twenty four. And this is something that Jesus said. So it's it's you know it's red letter, something worth noting. It says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So this is a, a concept that the, the, the early church really got. They really understood this, right? They understood that they couldn't save their own lives. Rather, they had to give in to God. They had to give the entirety of themselves to God in order for it to function. So today, we live in what's called a postmodern world, or a post-Christian world, if you will. We're starting to see more and more people turn away from the Orthodox church to getting away to secularism, right? And a lot of times we think maybe if we just appeal more to them or if we try to be better with our worship or better with our uh, messages, maybe if we preach more about prosperity and healing and those kind of things, maybe that will appeal to this audience. But the reality is that that's not what we were intended to do. We were never intended to be like the world or preach to the world. Rather, we were supposed to be a counterpoint to the world. We are supposed to live completely adjacent to the world, just on the other side, right? To show them what life in Christ could be like. In Luke 9, again, it says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does that sound like to you? <laughs> That's intense words. Uh, I think of it like this. We have been called to Service. Service in a kingdom, right? It's almost like being in the army or the military, right? You've taken up a vow, and you've died to yourself. you said you're, in the case of our, our super patriotic world right now, you've said that you are more, the country is more important than I, and I'm willing to sacrifice my life for it. But that's what we're called to in Christianity. We're called to sacrifice ourselves for the church, and we can't hold back a part of ourselves. And still be a part of it. So let's start reading this uh, passage here. We're going to start in verse 32. Again, I'm going to read it. And we're going to go through verse 37 for now. We're going to see a good example of this. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought them to the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it to the apostles' feet. Now, we could easily turn this into a political rant, right? This sounds a lot like socialism, <laughs> doesn't it? Where everything's in common, everybody has what they... No, no, nobody needs anything. It sounds, sounds kind of like political utopia, right? But we have to understand is these people did not live in a poli- political world. They lived in a kingdom world. And so while they lived in Rome, they were denying Rome, and they were saying, we believe in Christ and we follow Christ. And in doing so, we're going to stick to where it says Luke 9... We're going to lose our life so that we can save it, right? And so what's important about this, and specifically Barnabas, right? He sold his field. He laid it at their feet. But what we know about Barnabas later is he ends up going to Cyprus. He ends up going to other places in the book of Acts. He ends up being one of those people who introduces Paul, right? He is pivotal to the movement of Christ. So did he just sell his field and give it up? No. (laughs) He sold his possessions, his idols, And followed God, right? So he gave up his life for the church, his call to his service. And so what Barnabas understood was that in order to be that beacon of light, he had to die to himself. It's key. That's the only way we can all be of one heart and one soul. If we, for whatever reason, have our own mind or our own agendas, then we suddenly are not of one heart or one mind. Or one soul, And so if we have everything in common like Barnabas, right, we are then called to do everything we can for the church. I think the best example of verse 32 uh, comes from an Old Testament thing, right? And if we look at Ezekiel eleven, nineteen 19 through 20, it says, "...I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh." that they may walk in my statues and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. God was telling them that, look, when you, when Jesus has revealed himself to you, right, when you start following God, really following God, your heart of stone, the heart that uh, holds back and has desires outside of Christ, will be replaced with a heart of flesh that can feel And when we look at these passages from 32 through 37, there's one thing that it says. It says there was not a needy person among them, right? So that heart of flesh is now an empathetic heart. It understands that everyone is in need, right? And as we give, we give to everyone in our community. And that is just, it literally is like a kingdom-minded utopia. If anyone were to witness that, they would see the light of god in that alone that act alone forget forget any miracles or any signs wonders tongues anything of that sort that alone is a miracle how many times have you seen people in one room legitimately just out of their own humility and goodwill just loving everyone <laughs> and giving as anyone have need that's crazy the best part is it says the full member of those who believe, that's in verse 32, the full member, meaning every single believer had one heart and one soul. Every single believer was like Barnabas. They were willing to die for this cause, willing to die for the, the Christ, right? So there, it's just this crazy dynamic, right? They were living out what Jesus said. To uh, look uh, at this better, let's go to Luke chapter 6. And in Luke 6, um, this is basically after his Sermon on the Mount. This is a part of it. Uh, We're going to look at verses 20, starting in 27. Uh, And basically, he's telling us to love our enemies, right? And our enemies are anyone, really, and truly, who has a desire outside of our own, when we think about it. That's kind of everyone, really. (laughs) Sometimes my wife can be my enemy. I love you. Hi. (laughs) But sometimes she may have a a different agenda than I have, right? Right? which makes her my enemy by nature. Sometimes your best friend can have a different agenda than you have, which makes them your enemy. Basically, anyone who doesn't think and feel like you mentally is your enemy. So Jesus is telling us to love those people. So in verse 27, it says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. What credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. I want to be sons of the Most High, right? That sounds great. So in order for us to do that, then we have to love unconditionally. Loving means dying to ourselves giving up part of ourselves. Basically, we need to be together in one heart, one soul, one mind, one community, with a willingness to serve, even those that we don't like, right? So Barnabas gave up everything. He gave up everything he had, his land, his property, his money, and he just basically was like, look, I'm, I'm going to go, right? I'm going to go. Use me as you need me to be used, and he ends up being a pivotal part of Acts, a part of what we have today. In fact, actually, if he wasn't around, we may not even have some of these passages in the Bible that we have, some ones that I'm going to read later. So thankfully, this man gave up everything in favor of the kingdom. In James 1.22, it says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, right? There's a call, right? We get this call to hear Christ and hear his message, and then we get the second call to be the doer. And that's what Barnabas was. So why is the question? Why would they do this? Why would they give up everything they had for the church? Right? There has to be something that they understood that we don't understand today. They had to have viewed the church differently than we do somehow. Right? We see the church as a place we come on Sunday mornings maybe for a Bible study throughout the week. Uh, and we get fed, right? We, like, we have our music, and we have our word, which being delivered. But they must have viewed the church differently if they were willing to die for it, because what was it to them, right? The reality is, is they saw the church as their, their, the bride of Christ, the extension, the body of Christ. We'll go into this more in a little bit. But they saw it as the physical body of Christ. St. Uh, Superior, one of the old-timey ones, uh, he talked about how not only did they see it as the body and the bride of Christ, but they saw the church, the establishment, as the, the mother of those inside of it. Think of it like this. If we are a body collectively as one, then the church's role is to mother us, to, to teach us, right? To n- nurture us and nourish us, right? So he wrote, uh, you cannot have God for your father if you do not have the church for your mother. God is one and Christ is one and his church is one. One is the faith and one is the people, centered together by harmony into the strong unity of a body. If we are the heirs of Christ, right, we want to be the sons of the Most High, right? Let us abide in the peace of Christ. If we are the sons of God, let us be lovers of peace. So they understood that Christ was the extension, the living extension of the ascended Jesus, right? Jesus is ascended, but Christ is still working through the Holy Spirit through the church, The church is that unified body in which all have come and given up for one heart, one soul, one mind, right? And so we are asked to enact these principles in our life, to really act like that church, to be the body of Christ, to be the bride of Christ. It's essential uh, to who we are, right? So um, before we go any further, let's look at Ephesians 5. And uh, this is essential. This is kind of going to sound weird at first. Uh, because most of the time you hear this used at weddings, uh, so it's going to sound a little strange. So we're at Ephesians 5, we're going to look at verse 22. I recently had the um, pleasure to do a friend's wedding. It was the first wedding <laughs> I've ever done. It felt a little awkward, uh, but they wanted to have a homily, which is like a little mini- miniature sermon in there. They wanted it out of this verse, and so I spent a lot of time reading and researching through it, and I think near the end of it, I kind of like cracked its code, right? <laughs> I think I got it a little better than, than what it means. So on the surface, this is a, an extension of how wives and husbands are supposed to, to love each other, how they're supposed to uh, basically treat each other in the confines of a marriage. But there's something deeper that's being said underneath, uh, and Paul points it out near the end. So if you're with me, let's turn to 5, and we're in verse 22. The Old Testament, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And here's the kicker. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So we often take that whole context to be just about man and woman and how they are married, right? But this verse right here says, look, no, 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 no. It is about that, but it is about primarily Christ and his church. So if we start looking back through here, And you start circling things. You'll see that Christ is the head of the church. His body himself is the Savior, right? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for that uh, so that he might be presented to the church himself without spot or wrinkle. He wants a bride without spot or wrinkle, that she might be holy and without blemish, right? And then it says we are members of his body. That's in verse 30. What it's establishing is that the church, like a man and woman when they are married together in covenant, are of one flesh, We are an extension of Christ. And if we are the bride of Christ, then we must submit to Christ, which means we must live in a lifestyle that Christ has dictated as good. Right? Love your neighbors as yourselves. (laughs) That is the main command that we get from him that comes above everything else. So the early church understood this. They got this. They said, okay, we are the extension of Christ. We are the body of Christ of Christ. We we are not just people. We are physically the body manifested as Christ on earth. We are his wife, his bride. And so by doing so, it is our job to by extension put out the truth, to be this light, and more importantly, to be a unified light. The moment that it breaks apart is the moment that everything falls apart. And this is what Satan understood, right? If I can destroy the bride, maybe I can destroy the groom, right? It's the key to the whole thing. And so now as we go into verses, the first couple of verses in chapter 5 of Acts, we're going to see two people who sadly um, don't get it, right? And, and they don't get it for a reason. We'll, we'll get into that. But they, they don't get this whole body of the church concept, right? They have their own desires outside of it. And because of that, Satan has found a way to try to destroy the church. But if we remember correctly, the Holy Spirit is moving and working within the church, right? Just as it should be today. And so in doing so, it's rooting out the evil. It's destroying it. So let's read chapter 5. It says, But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now some of you, that may sound kind of drastic. Two people just died, right? They just just straight up fell over and died and were dragged out. Uh, the young men had, had the cloths like just waiting. They're like, yep, let's wrap them up and take them out. <laughs> and that sounds crazy, right? Uh, but I want to I make a bigger picture here, first and foremost. The Holy Spirit is at work, right? It's at work living and breathing within the church, yeah. right? And it's key to understand that just because j- Jesus, who by extension is the mediator, is the God of grace, he is still also our judge, Right? It says that in Matthew. And so he judges the hearts of man, right? Now, to outward appearance, it would seem like they died just because they didn't give everything they had, right? Which is not the point. It's not the point at all. Peter even says it. He said, uh, Where is it? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal, right? He's saying, Look, you, you could have kept it. You could have kept all of it. But instead, You contrive this deed in your heart. You have not lied to man, but to God. And there's an interesting thing that is said in verse 3. And the reason why it's interesting is because you will not find it except for one other place in the Bible, right? And it says, uh, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Key word here, why has Satan filled your heart? Who does that sound like? Judas. Go look at Luke, right? In Luke 22, three, it talks about how Satan had basically took over Judas. He filled his heart to lie, to be deceitful, to destroy the church, the unity within the church. He tried it with Judas to destroy Jesus, lost there, and now he's trying with Ananias and Sapphira to destroy the church, the body. And so what we have to understand is, while it looks like maybe what they did wasn't that serious, it is serious because Satan filled their heart, consumed their heart, meaning that it wasn't just their own start of a desire. Rather, it was the fullness of who they were. And we can't have Satan in our church, or else we wouldn't be of one heart and one soul. So they died. <laughs> and I think we have to understand that, that, that we should not allow that to happen See, it starts when we start filling our hearts with desires that are outside of Christ's desire for the kingdom. The moment we start building our own heart or our own passions is the moment that we start sort of drifting further away from that one heart, one soul, one mind train of thought. In James 4, if you will turn with me there, uh, this is verses 1 through 7. James uh, basically warns us against worldliness, right? The one thing that I just said we shouldn't do earlier is we shouldn't try to appeal to the world. Rather, we should be the counterpoint for the world. So in James four, it says, "What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? Your desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask." but he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So let's look at these two definitions, right? God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. So what's the difference between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira? Well, Barnabas was humble, wasn't he? He was willing to give up everything he had for the church. Whereas Ananias and Sapphira wanted to, as it says, keep back for themselves. Some uh, of the commentators comment when they, when they translate it from the Greek. They basically are implying that Ananias and Sapphira told the entirety of the church that they were giving everything to the church, but they kept back some for themselves. So they, they lied to the church and to Peter and to God and to the Holy Spirit. They was just full of deceit, right? They, they lied to everyone. They said, yeah, we're giving everyone This. He even says it here, uh, and tell me whether you sold the land for so much, and she said yes, for so much, but it wasn't the fullness of what it was, right? So they had told everyone that they're going to give all of this to God, yet they kept back for themselves. To quote another uh, sort of first century, uh, actually, sorry, third century theologian, John Cassian, it says, Lastly, the chief of apostles taught by these instances, and knowing that one has any avarice cannot brittle it. And that it cannot be put an end to by a large or small sum of money, but only by the virtue of renunciation of everything. Punished with death, Ananias and Sapphira, who were mentioned before, because they had kept back something out of their property, that the death which Judas had voluntarily met for the sin of betraying the Lord, they might also undergo for their lying avarice. How closely do the sin and punishment correspond in each case? In the one case, treachery, and the other, falsehood, was the result of covetousness. In both cases, Judas, Ananias, Sapphira, it all stemmed from covetousness. Judas, someone who didn't have money, wanted money. Ananias and Sapphira, someone who had money, didn't want to lose their money, right? Right? What does it say? That that money is the root of all forms of evil, right? It's the start of it. It's the start of covetousness. As soon as we start desiring something outside of God and out of God's will, then we are victims. We are basically in the same place that they are. Satan can fill our heart just as easily, and we are all guilty of it. (laughs) No No one is clean from this one. No hands are clean, right? But God extends grace to the humble. right? So, Like Barnabas, he extends grace to those who have decided, I want to put that away, and I want to chase after God. Now, I'm not advocating for all of you to go sell your homes and your property. I'm not saying any of that. I'm not saying to come lay all of your deeds at my feet or anything. Rather, what I'm saying is, look, we have been given something. We've been given a chance to do something. The church body is the extension of Christ. And so we should do as much as we can to build it up. Uh, That could come in the form of giving, but it could also come in the form of service. More importantly, what Barnabas did was not what he sold and what he gave away, but it was what he did after. He became the church, the extension of the church. He took the church out into the world, right? That's what we're called to do. And so we have to ask ourselves those questions, right? Are we willing to give up everything we have for Christ, for Christ's body? Are we willing to kind of put aside some form of our earthly gain in favor of eternal gain? I am. (laughs) Now, that is a daily battle that I have to live through. But at the same time, it's something that we all have to think about. So now that we have that picture, right, we have these two pictures. We have Barnabas, we have Ananias, we have Sapphira. Now, in the next couple of verses, we're going to see what the church can accomplish when it is of one heart and one soul and one mind, right? When it is functioning and working as it is intended to do. The magnitude of things is just never ending, right? So in verse 12, it says Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And here it is, verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that, even, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed all, (laughs) not one, all, right? The magnitude of what the church can do when it is of one heart and one mind is endless, right? The church is the extension of Christ. It's the body of Christ himself, and in doing so, if it's not functioning that way, then it's not actually putting forth what it's supposed to do. 12 through 17 is important, sorry, 16, because This gives us a picture of how our church should be functioning. It gives us a picture of how every church should function, right? Not so much necessarily the healing. like That's fine. That's one thing. What the big thing is, is in verse 14, is that every day believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, right? That's the key part to all of this. A church that is functioning and is the bride of Christ, right? The extension of his body will by nature be seeing these signs and wonders. And the biggest sign and wonder is growing believers daily. There's nothing better, right? You can, have, you can be sick. You can have cancer. It, it, it doesn't matter. What does matter is if you have grown in Jesus and grown through Jesus and you have eternal salvation. That is the ultimate right there. Verse 14 is huge because that's what we need to be doing. So this morning, before I continue any further, I just want to say that our church Uh, has been around for several years, right? Uh, When we first started, I can attest to this, uh, we really functioned like a community in that um, we didn't have a place to be, right? We didn't have a place that we were at, but what we saw is that everywhere we went, the people who were there were willing to come early, stay late. They were always willing to to bring things in (laughs) to help set up sound equipment or bring in a 60-inch TV that had a speaker underneath it that weighed 125 pounds. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it took four guys to do every single time. Uh, those kind of things. And, and what, was, what was beautiful about that is rather than focusing on all these other ex- external ex- things, like where, what the church looked like, everyone was focused on the community within. I think we were closer together as one group, one heart, one soul, one mind, because we felt genuinely like we were doing something for each other, which by nature is something for God. And so uh, I want to say this. As many of you know, we have sold this building, uh, which means that we will be leaving this building soon. That does not mean the church is, is exiting, right? We're actually going to go into a new phase, and we're talking about where to go. And uh, we'll probably have to return to a stage where we need the help of the community as much as possible. And if I had my will, we would stay that way forever. <laughs> because that's how we're supposed to function. The early church didn't have a place. They didn't have a building. They didn't have a temple. Every time they went into the temple, they got arrested. (laughs) So what we have to understand is if we want to be the church and be the body as we are intended to be, then we have to sacrifice a little bit of ourselves and be willing to go forward. Go forward with him to do what we can daily, to do what we can weekly. Rather than just coming to church to receive, we have to come to church to give. So, I'm going to read another passage. This is from uh, Ephesians, Ephesians four. I'm all about some Ephesians today. Good book if you've never read it. Just saying, throwing it out there. It's great. You know, it's good. Uh, a letter of Paul, by the way, and Paul wouldn't without Barnabas wouldn't really have you know much to say at this point. Well, we'll just go into that. Barnabas is the extension by which Paul even came into the graces of the apostles. So we'll just throw that out there. Uh, Ephesians four. We'll read one through three. It says, I, therefore, I love this word here. I love it. Some people hate this, but it says, a prisoner for the Lord. Oh, God, I love that, right? Uh, Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of Peace. So, we're called to love one another, we're called to enact that love, to act as that functioning community. If you believe like Paul did, then we are prisoners to Christ, right? We have signed up for service, we are going to die to Christ, right? And if we're going to die to Christ, we might as well just keep on going with it. Might as well keep on building the community, and who cares what the world thinks about us? Legitimately, who cares? The world keeps looking for crazy things, right? They keep trying to expand into all different sorts of things. We, we idolize politics. We idolize uh, our workout regimen. <laughs> we idolize music. We idolize celebrities. We idolize everything. We idolize anything that will come our way that looks like a promise of hope. But the only promise that we have in life and death is that we are not our own, but rather that we've been bought by the blood of Christ. And so this morning, I am here to advocate for a first-century church. I don't want any of this postmodernness. I don't want us to worry about theology and eschatology. I want us to simply function like we did in the first century, to be that community that prays for each other, that admonishes each other, that cares for each other, that loves each other, that sends text messages weekly to say, hey, how you doing? What are you struggling with? How can we help you? How can we love you? And I'm just asking each one of you to think as we go along this week, if we want to be like that first century church, that we just will die to ourselves a little bit today. Stop trying to save our own life and save others, right? That's what Jesus did. He didn't care about his own life. He knew he was called to die on a cross, a horrible death. The Roman Empire said it was the worst kind of death that one could imagine. To be just mutilated and sitting up there. I'm sorry to paint this picture, but I think we need to talk about it sometimes. He died to himself. He died, gave himself up for all of us, and he called us to pick up our cross and do the same thing. That's not small words. That doesn't just mean simply accepting a prayer and saying, hey, Jesus, love you, man. Now I'm going to go hang out and do whatever I want. You know it doesn't mean that. No, it doesn't. It means that we are signed up for a life of service, and just like you sign up for the military or the army or the air force, you're signed up for life. This tour doesn't end. And so this morning, as we uh, have come together, I just pray that all of us will take these words seriously. That we'll be that church that sees signs and wonders. And the only way we're capable of doing that is to come together as one body, one heart, and one soul and one mind. And so I ask you next week, come early. Stay late. <laughs> ask, ask someone how you can help. Call a friend, a family member that you haven't talked to in a while, and just legitimately tell them about Jesus. Just to pray for them. Ask them if you can pray. It's not hard. It takes a little bit of time, but the more we die to ourselves, the better we'll be at it. So, this morning, I'm going to pray over you guys, and then uh, we'll continue from there. Dear Lord, I just pray that as we have come together in this place, and we have been studying through this book of Acts, we are getting this picture of what your desire for the church was, and is, and shall be. And I just pray, Lord, that as we have all come and rallied behind this idea, that we will morph into the bride that you want us to be, the one perfected, the one that's ready for the bridegroom to come. I pray, Lord, that we will die a little to ourselves daily in favor of you, and that we will be that light into our communities. And that this church will not just be another church but rather will be a path into the way of the truth and the light. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen.